Two and a Half Admins, episode 98. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And we've got a bunch of your questions to get to today. But before we get into it, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can find out more at 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan, or your feedback about anything, really, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Okay, Meha writes, I want to build a Raspberry Pi cluster similar to the one in this tutorial. And then he links to a raspberrypi.com tutorial. In the process of finding the right switch, I noticed that there were many specifications that I don't even understand. Actually, the only specs I understood were, one, the number of ports, two, the speed of the ports, and three, whether it supports power over Ethernet or not. I don't know the differences between PRE standards. I need one with at least eight ports. All ports should support one gigabit per second or more, and all ports must have power over Ethernet to power the Raspberry Pis. I live in Germany, and I'm building it for home use on a student budget, so price matters, preferably under €100. In past episodes, you mentioned that you like TP-Link products, as they're good value for money. Through my search, I found the TP-Link TLSG1200 for €80. Any advice or recommendation would be much appreciated. So basically, that switch should be perfect for what you're looking for. The big specification that you didn't mention that's important here is going to be the max power delivery that the switch supports of power over Ethernet. And that's an eight-port switch, and each individual port can deliver up to 30 watts. However, they can't all deliver 30 watts at the same time. What the switch as a whole can deliver is 63 watts. However, that gets divvied up amongst all the ports, which shouldn't be a problem for you here because I checked the Raspberry Pi 4 specifications And uh, it should not draw much more than six watts, even under maximum load. So with eight of those, you're talking about 48 watts total, which is well under the 63 that that TP-Link switch supports. It supports all of the standard modern and even not so modern PoE protocols. Basically, the only thing it's missing is some of the weird like passive PoE stuff that some of the older Ubiquiti gear used, which you don't need that. You don't want that. It's fine. So in short, my advice is, yes, you found the right switch for your project buy it, enjoy. Yeah, it can be interesting when there's so many specs lists, especially that one. I just like 802.everything and a bunch of jumbles of letters. Looking at it, it doesn't look like it actually supported some of the more interesting stuff that people sometimes do with switches like that, like lags and so on. Although with an eight-part switch, lag probably doesn't make sense anyway. But in this case, that's a feature in this, <laughs> that uh, it doesn't have too much else and it just has enough ports, the ports are the speed you want, and it has enough PoE oomph to power all of the things you want to power off of it at once. Yeah, that's probably worth mentioning. So this is not really a smart switch. It's not fully managed. You can't set up everything that you might possibly want to in the way of you know, VLANs or or bonding or whatever. Um, If you want a fully managed TP-Link switch, then you're going to be looking for one that says Jetstream in front of it. At the eight-port level, that's going to be, looks like the T1500G, but it, you know, it's going to be significantly more expensive. And you know, in your cluster, you're not wanting VLANs to separate them out into different networks anyway. So, I think what you picked is the right one. Right. It's a little difficult for me to search for uh, prices there in Germany. But for example, your your price in euros is not that far off of what I would pay for the switch that you selected in the United States in dollars. By contrast, the TP-Link Jetstream fully managed switch that I mentioned, also eight port, that one would set you back two hundred and seventy dollars US. So I would expect probably about, what, Joe, about 230 euro? Is that about right? Uh, Probably. 
So yeah, you're, you're looking at about triple the cost of, of the dumb PoE switch you were looking at. So unless you specifically need VLAN features on your switch and, you know, full management capabilities, I think you picked the right gear to begin with. Now, Meha says that this is just for home use and it's presumably just for the fun of doing it. But is clustering Raspberry Pis together really a good idea for anything beyond a bit of fun? I think it's useful if you just want to learn, like, you know, if you want to build a cluster, doing it out of a bunch of the cheapest machines you can, can be interesting. Although at some point it's like, well, I could have just spun up a dozen VMs across one or two machines or whatever to experiment with the concept of clustering without buying a bunch of Raspberry Pis. So it's even cheaper that way and more home lab But yeah, it's like Raspberry Pis are nice for what they are, but you have to realize the limits of that. You know, it's extremely cheap hardware that's not very reliable and kind of weird. And, you know, you're probably not actually getting more fault tolerance because you have such flaky hardware. That's the other thing is they tend not to always fail outright is just start acting really strange. Whereas a better machine built well is probably going to give you better uptime than, than this stuff with a cluster. But, you know, what you do in your home lab for fun is, you know, go ahead. But if you're building something to try to do something useful. I believe what Alan's trying to say here is whatever happens in your home lab behind closed doors between consenting <laughs> adults and machines. <laughs> now, I, I, I largely agree with Alan here. I don't think that clustering Raspberry Pis specifically is a good idea for much of anything beyond learning. Because all, you know, all the things that he mentioned, they're, they're not particularly low fault frequency devices to begin with. And the types of faults that they routinely experience are anathema to effective clustering. Whether you're talking about a cluster computer or whether you're ta just talking about, you know, a simple RAID array, one of the very important things is knowing when a redundant component has died and should be removed. And the more different, weird, deranged states that you're likely to encounter on one of those devices, the more likely it is that your controller is not going to do a good job of stopping relying on it when it's broken. There's also a lot of additional complexity that you bring in when you set up a cluster, regardless of the quality of the components. There's a lot more going on to decide how to distribute everything amongst them, how to detect faults. All of those are things that can break as well. And yeah, the, with the performance on Raspberry Pis where they are, uh, when the Raspberry Pi 4 launched, they did a stunt where basically they packed an entire rack full of Raspberry Pi 4s and they served the web page for the Pi 4 off of that cluster of Pi 4s for a couple of days when that track would, would be at its logical peak when everybody was the most interested in a Pi 4. And to be fair, this cluster of quite a lot of Pi 4s did manage it. Also, to be fair, you could have built a higher performance server. And if you absolutely had to have redundancy, a pair of them, <laughs> you know, with HA for less. So I don't think it's a directly productive idea, but I think it's a totally cool hobby project. And I think it's entirely possible that there are folks out there who don't have a high performance desktop machine that can really handle putting together 10 or 20, you know, lightweight VMs to act as, you know, like Kubernetes, a uh, Kubernetes cluster or whatever. Uh, a lot of people aren't going to have that hardware and it would be more expensive for them to get that hardware than to put together a project like Mayars. So yeah, in a hope lab, a cluster of pies can, can make sense. There are times it does, there are times it doesn't for learning, you know, as opposed to VMs. But in general, yeah, I think we're just back to that again for education. Great. For a hobby. Great. For like, this is my game plan for my business, uh, let's not. Yeah. I mean, the same thing 
comes up when people ask about, you know, I have a bunch of old hardware together. I want to put them together in some kind of array to, to play with it. And it's like, that's fine. Just don't get caught in the trap of, well, now I have this array with all the storage. I'm going to put some stuff on it and end up putting something you actually want on it because it was built out of leftover pieces or whatever. It's, it's not, you know, how much do you trust the data on there? Nobody wants to buy that much trouble. Well, they do. They just don't realize how much trouble it's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> Omui writes, may I ask what some alternatives to Cloudflare's dynamic DNS and DNS services are in order to better protect our privacy? I suppose it depends a bit of what privacy you're trying to protect. Yeah. Dynamic DNS, I don't really see as being about protecting privacy. It's about being able to have a DNS that points to whatever your IP is. Yeah, it's like the opposite of privacy. It's that <laughs> dynamic DNS is about being able to be found. Yeah, for that, most domain registrars offer DNS hosting now with some reasonable dynamic DNS thing. I know Gandhi does and has a nice API that also uh, I've been using heavily for Let's Encrypt stuff. There are lots of providers there. I would avoid Dyn since it's owned by Oracle now, but uh, that was definitely the go-to for the first 30 years of the internet. Namecheap offers it as well which is my registrar of choice. I recommend Namecheap to everybody, their DNS service. I very rarely use their DNS service just because, you know, I've been running my own bind instances for, you know, like <laughs> 30 years. But uh, I do have them enabled for a few domains and they have been perfectly fine. I recommend Namecheap for pretty much everything they do. Yeah, uh, I definitely have lots of domains registered at Namecheap. If you need something fancier for DNS hosting, dnsmadeeasy.com is quite good. And they have a couple of uh, interesting services, including dynamic A records, where it basically can monitor the IP. And if it goes down, change the A record to point to a backup IP and stuff like that. That was uh, very interesting. And they have all the anycast and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, for basic dynamic DNS, almost every registrar has something decent. And uh, I would second Namecheap as a good option there. And then for DNS, I'm assuming you mean like their public DNS, like a resolver. And if you want a recursive resolver, there are a bunch of them. Quad9 is an easy one to remember because it's 9.9.9.9. But I know Hurricane Electric also has one, and there's a bunch of other ones. Yeah, Google's obviously not the choice for privacy. <laughs> I use it, but I'm not worried about that. But yeah, there's a bunch of other options there. But you know, if you're that worried about your privacy, then you probably want something a little different than what Cloudflare was offering anyway. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. The challenge with endpoint security has always been that it's difficult to scale. And when remote work took over, the challenge got exponentially harder. You need visibility into your fleet of devices in order to meet security goals and reduce service desk tickets. But how do you get that visibility when different parts of your company run on Mac, Windows and Linux? You get Collide. Collide is an endpoint security solution that gives IT teams a single dashboard for all devices regardless of their operating system. Collide gives you real-time access to your fleet's data and can do things that traditional MDMs can't. And instead of installing intrusive agents or locking down devices, Collide takes a user-focused approach that communicates security recommendations to your employees directly on Slack. You can answer every question you have about your fleet without intruding on your workforce. Visit collide.com 25A to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash two five A. So Adam writes, I've been wrangling with the idea that I don't need my power gulping desktop anymore and was considering a switch to a laptop. I was looking for a dock 
and came to the conclusion that USB-C, not Thunderbolt, would be sufficient. But even then, prices range from dinky little $50 docks all the way up to $300 plus. If the $50 docks have all the ports I need, any reason to go bigger? Any experience with these or suggestions? I've got fairly modest goals in mind and wouldn't mind purchasing an AMD-based laptop in the future, hence ruling out Thunderbolt. Yes, there is a difference between the dinky little docks and the more expensive docks. There are a few differences, actually. I have seen inexpensive USB-C docks have issues with supplying as much power as some laptops want to charge, which can mean slower charging or in some cases no charging at all. I have also seen some of them have issues with the dock itself maybe getting a little flaky when under heavy load, especially, you know, in terms of charging a bigger laptop's battery and just in general liability. Unfortunately, it's still kind of the wild west out there with USB-C docks. The best advice I can give you is do your research as best as you can trying to look through user reviews. And I know it's tough, especially if you're looking at Amazon reviews, you know, trying to weed out the astroturfing and the crap, but you've got to at least make some effort. If it's going to be something that you really, really need to rely on and you're using, particularly like if you got like a Dell or an an HP laptop, it's frequently worth it to go ahead and spend a little bit more money and to get the larger actual OEM branded USB-C dock that goes with that laptop. Now, technically, again, USB-C is USB-C. There's nothing stopping you from charging one laptop, you know, with one brand name from another one with a different brand name over USB-C. The big thing is just that my experience has been that like the $200 and up Dell docks with charging have been pretty flawless. But I've also had a lot of clients go out and buy, you know, whatever crap they found on Amazon that looked cheap and have just absolutely horrible experiences. And that can range from slow charging to slow frame rates on displays to, uh, you know, Wi-Fi or networking just cutting out from the dock. There's a lot of things that can go wrong, so shop carefully. Yeah, I would avoid the very lowest end ones, but at the same time, just because it's expensive doesn't mean it's good. You don't get what you pay for, you get what you get. And I second Jim's idea of with the OEM, if you go with your, your Dell or your HP or your Lenovo, you can expect probably similar build quality to the laptop. If you're happy with the laptop, it's probably going to work well. And it means they kind of built this with your laptop in mind. And so it's definitely, you know, it's been tested with it and it's going to be able to, you know, provide enough power to charge it or whatever. Whereas some random thing, probably not. And like Jim was saying, especially the really cheap ones that were made and, you know, does it even have the right UL certifications and so on, might give off too much RF interference and just screw with your Wi-Fi or otherwise cause issues. What about just buying a NUC type device instead that has a mobile CPU that's going to use a lot less power than a desktop, but is designed to be a desktop computer? Well, I think the the goal of most people with a dock is I have all the stuff I want on my laptop. I want to be able to grab it and go, but then come back when I'm sitting at my desk, have my big monitor and mouse and stuff, but I want it to be the same machine. Yeah, but Adam specifically says that he's just looking to replace a desktop here. Is it usually the reason that you would want to use a very small form factor PC, whether it be, you know, NUC or Bricks or Chotum or Minis Forum or a bajillion of these things, I think truly the biggest reason for that is because you want to do visa mounting and just bolt the thing to the back of a monitor. You know for a fact that you want a desktop-like machine in the sense that it's not portable. It always sits right there. Everything's always connected. It's easy to deal with. But yeah, you, you get lower power consumption and also just kind of a, a neater, tidier desk because everything's just kind of all bolted onto to one thing and it's easy to deal with. I've got 
a ton of those upstairs for my family to use, you know, for my kids' virtual school. There are all these little, you know, Visa mount, small form factor PCs that just bolt right to the back of the monitor. That's really neat. But the thing about that is it's not actually cheaper than a laptop. Laptops are really inexpensive these days because it's such a widely desired form factor. They're manufactured at such scale that, you know, the costs come way down. And typically for about the same price that you would buy a, you know, very small form factor PC that doesn't have a screen and doesn't have a keyboard or a lot of these other things, it's the same cost whether you get that or whether you get a laptop that has all that and the keyboard and the screen and it's portable. So unless you know for a fact, like I have a separate laptop and I want that to be separate and I want this computer to always be here and to not move, the, the laptop's frequently a, a better idea. Yeah, like thinking about the NUC that I have powering my TV, other than the fact that a laptop would take a little bit more room on the TV stand or whatever, I think a laptop would end up actually having more ports than my NUC does and be more useful. The big disadvantage to the laptop there is typically that um, it's harder to predict the amount of noise you're going to get out of it because laptops tend to be very dynamic with the cooling solution. And, you know, next thing you're playing your video and it's quiet at first and next thing you know, it's, you know, and then it stops again. I've had that with the Gigabyte Bricks. I had to stop using it because it was just too annoying. Yeah. Yeah, my, my knuckle will do that a little bit. I mostly notice it after we turn the show off and you can hear the fan <laughs> after about a minute or two actually start winding down from what it was. It's not enough to bother us during the show, but when you turn the show off and you're just sitting at the menu and Plex or whatever, you actually do hear the fan winding down. Basically, though, my advice for laptops is very similar to my advice. And here we go back with crappy car analogies again. It's identical to the advice I give to people about four-wheel drive. If you're going to spend a significant amount of time actually off-road in mud and snow and whatever, you should absolutely, you know, get the four-wheel drive option for your vehicle. If you're not going to do that, please don't, because even when the four-wheel drive is not engaged, if you get a four-wheel drive truck, you gave up about three to five miles to the gallon in gasoline efficiency just in having that four-wheel drive, even when it's not engaged. It's not worth it. You shouldn't have it. So it's kind of the same thing with the laptops. If you're going to pick it up and take it with you fairly frequently, you should get a laptop. Laptops are great for that. If you know for a fact that you're not going to do that, then it becomes worth considering, even at the same price, getting something that is designed not to be picked up and taken with you, just because there's other stuff that you don't have to worry about that can get in your way. Like, you know, yeah, you can plug your laptop into a dock and you can plug the dock into a couple of monitors and a keyboard into the dock and a mouse into the dock and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you've still got this kind of weird form factor to just sit on your desk blob thing there to worry about that's made all these other compromises. You know, like, how do you cool this thing that's only a few millimeters thick that a purpose-designed NUC or other small form factor PC can be more sanely engineered for? You just, you, you buy the right machine for the use case that you have. Okay, Jay says, have you heard of Zero Tier as an alternative to WireGuard? It's another open source network tunneling tool, but it has some features that make it a pretty nice alternative. Central network management, traffic filtering rules, support contracts available for large networks. I've used it for quite a long time now to provide remote SSH access to my home servers, and it's been great, very reliable, and the NAT punching works very well. I've heard of Zero Tier, but I haven't used it personally. In theory, it seemed kind of interesting. Uh, I believe Zero Tier is more of a mesh than a traditional hub-and-spoke VPN. Yeah. If I recall. Just looking at the pricing page and so on that they have on their website, and it talks about how many people you can have connected at once. Uh, the free tier is up to 50 people with one admin, 
And then for $50 a month, you can get up to 500 people in 10 admins with uh, paid support. It feels a bit more like, what was that thing that they used to be back in the Hamachi or whatever? Yeah. Just kind of like a centrally mediated mesh type thing. And, you know, I can see for a lot of companies that don't want to administer their own VPN or whatever, how this could be a nice kind of out of the box solution. It feels like it's, it, there's kind of the problem that like you have to have some pretty techie people on board to come up with the idea that, hey, we should use this zero tier thing. But it feels like you can't get much techier than that before now you've got the kind of people that are saying, why would we pay these people and introduce this dependency on an outside source when we could just spin this thing up ourselves and be done with it? Yeah. Although depending on the type of environment you are and the type of developers and so on that you have, it sometimes comes down to if it's something we don't have to maintain, we'd rather pay for it. Running a modern company nowadays, I've noticed that we pay, you know, X dollars per user per month for basically everything. <laughs> you know, one for our chat software, one for our time support software, one for all the, you know, calendaring and all the other software, then one's for our Kanban board-ish management stuff. Well, it's a scale-out issue, right? Yeah. I mean, the more employees you have, the more willing you are to burn money on making it the same for all of them so that, you know, you don't have to have like an entire other department just to manage how you manage your people. Yeah, exactly. So things that you're you're absolutely not going to tolerate in a small business are practically required at enterprise because you're, you become a lot more concerned about the the scope of managing all those people than about the efficiency. So you may be spending twice as much to have every single user you have doing everything on that, you know, per user per month model. But it, that might be such a small portion of your operating budget that you're like, well, this is well worth it just to be able to say, oh, this is exactly what it costs us for this software for these users. And it's the same every month. Uh, we're not like wondering when the license is going to expire for Microsoft Office and do we care enough to upgrade to the next version or are we going to, you know, ride it out and skip one? And then when we do, you know, we've got to spend as much as it would have cost for, you know, four or five years all at once to get the license that will last a number of years that we're not sure, blah, 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 versus $5 a month per user. Here's your Office 365. Yeah. Well, and also for VPNs, you can think, you know, uh, especially if you think back before WireGuard, you went and built something and it's been, you know, silently accruing technical debt in the background because nobody's been managing it versus if you're just paying for a service, somebody else has already taken care of that. So I can see the appeal of it, but I've not tried it. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to leno.com 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's leno.com 25A. Okay, Mike says, you're all entrepreneurs to some extent. Do you ever manage to take a full day off? Yeah, although more than a couple of days usually end up 
paying for it afterwards. Or before. Yeah, probably before and after where it just, you know, you do a bunch of extra work to make sure it's clear. And then when you get back, there's a bunch of work that piled up. But not being able to suggests that you're you're doing something wrong. Uh, kind of like we were talking about other episodes, you need to have plans for things and so on. There's a, a great post by a friend of mine, Julio Marino, called Always Be Quitting. And that one's more about working somewhere than being an entrepreneur, but it's always about, you know, preparing documentation and, and making sure that the other people on your team know how to do things so that you could someday quit. And I think that could really apply to entrepreneurs is you need to be in this situation because, you know, you could just be sick for a couple of days, like really sick and not be able to be around or, you know. I suddenly had gallstones and was in the hospital for the first time ever. And it's like, yeah, I'm doing no work for a couple of days. So, you know, hopefully I've prepared well enough that my team can fill in for me and it's not just a, a tire fire. Yeah, a lot of my job really revolves around designing and building and maintaining systems to be able to run reliably without a ton of constant babysitting. So, if I'm completely unable to take, to take, you know, a day off, that tends to kind of imply some failure on my end. The bigger problem for me usually is just that it's not so much the job, the IT part of it, that it's hard to take a day off from. It's just, it's hard to set expectations, you know, with the humans that you interact with that, like, you can't call me for a day or two because I'm not working for a day or two because they don't like that. That part can be kind of difficult. Yeah, I kind of cheated that a lot in the past with travel. It's like, yeah, I I won't be reachable. I'll be on an airplane or whatever. And then I'll be in a, an opposite time zone. So I'll not be awake when you're awake. And so I'll be unreachable. It's a bit of a societal problem that that's acceptable, but just trying to unplug for a day at home isn't. When really, I shouldn't have to fly to another country to get you to leave me alone. <laughs> for me, the answer is sadly no, not a full day. I try. I try and take at least one day off a week. But there's just always something to do. It might just be a little bit of community management that I have to do or just a bit of reading of news or just, you know, I might be just reading Twitter and, and I'll see something that might be good to cover in a show. So I'll just copy paste that into a document. And that is technically work. You know, I got to admit, if we're if we're including things like that, just like keeping up with, you know, IT news and IT Twitter and things like that. No, I really don't ever take a full day off. Yeah, I would say, you know, reading things about tech and so on is is very much what I and fall back to while sitting in the airport waiting for the plane or whatever, when I'm supposed to be finally getting to unplug, right? And oftentimes, you know, I can't get my brain to stop thinking about these things. And it's not necessarily, you know, a lot of that comes down to, you know, I got into this stuff because I enjoy thinking about it. Mm. Exactly. But at the same time, I definitely do understand that getting to pull away from the work bits of it and let my mind relax so that it can think about even those things and, and be creative and come up with the new ideas. You know, I can't, I don't come up with the new ideas when I'm trying to think about it. They come when you're in the shower and so on, right? When you can get your brain to kind of go into neutral. Yeah. But it's kind of a good sign, I think, that if when you have time off, you actually want to do things related to your work. It means that you've chosen a career that suits you and that actually interests you. Yeah. And I remember, you know, when I was still in high school and I was doing a, a work placement at the power plant and, you know, there was a bunch of the people there working in the IT department, but they're like, yeah, as soon as I go home, I don't want anything to do with a computer. I'm like, 
how are you not like super jazzed about everything like I am? And I didn't, you know, quite understand that some of that was just useful exuberance. And some of it was just that, you know, I'm a bit different and more interested in this stuff than even a lot of the people in industry for it. But as I've gotten older, I've also started to understand it's like, you know, it doesn't have to be all of the time. I can go, you know, get a hobby that doesn't have something to do with computers and go outside or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly why I do the music stuff to try and just do something else. Although, again, if I come up with something good, maybe it'll be a future show theme tune. So it's never fully switching myself off. You know, I think there's probably also an argument to be made that if you don't have to fight a little bit to disengage yourself just from your own natural tendency to bury yourself in the things that you're doing professionally, it's an indication that you're probably burning yourself out. You should be fighting the inclination to dive right back into those things that fascinate you at work when you're not at work and have to remind yourself, you know, no, I should go hike or I should play chess with the kids or I should, you know, noodle around with my guitar or whatever and back away from that a little bit. If you get off of work and you immediately want absolutely nothing to do with a computer, that's a fairly good sign that you're not really very happy at that job, or at the very least, you won't be for that much longer. Yeah, you're, you're burnt out and you need to take a break and, and get things sorted out and get back to a better equilibrium. I've really only ever had one IT job that burned me out so badly that I just didn't want to go anywhere near a computer, you know, when I was done every day. And uh, I quit that job and I don't regret quitting that job. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm on Twitter at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.